Amen. Thank you, choir. Musicians and Dr. Ayler. Man, that did justice to the name of Jesus this morning. I feel like that was fully appropriate. Exciting times in the life of our church. You should have gotten an exciting email on Monday. Speaking of our music ministry and our, our wonderful choir, Aaron Duncan, I can say his name. Aaron Duncan is the unanimous recommendation from the search committee, the unanimous recommendation from the personnel committee, the unanimous recommendation from the deacon body as well, and from the staff and anyone else who's seen his resume and met Aaron and his sweet wife Laura and their four kiddos. Morgan and I are greatly concerned that his children are so well behaved that ours are going to look even worse than they are already, but we'll get over that. We're going to work through it. You guys have been gracious, so we're going to be fine with that. I can't wait for you to meet him next week. Uh, be here uh, November 3rd and, and meet Aaron and his family. This Saturday, we're going to have a reception in the Fellowship Hall from 2 to 4. Around 3, we're going to have a program where the, you'll hear from the personnel committee chair, you'll hear from the search committee chair, and you'll hear from Aaron. Uh, he'll give his testimony there. He'll do that again briefly in the service on uh, Sunday. He will also conduct an anthem with our choir. Aaron gets traditional Baptist churches. He grew up in Hendersonville at Bluegrass Baptist Church, where his dad was music minister. So he, he loves the hymns of our faith. We, we tried to find a candidate who could do everything, and Aaron can. He plays every instrument. He was the head of the drum line at uh, Tennessee's. We, when we announced that in the deacon meeting, uh, we had about 10, all right, then we had about 10, oh, really, not, not, not Tennessee. And then we had 10, like, yeah, whatever. So, whatever side you're on of that, he, he's very qualified, and he's an incredible musician, an incredible man of God. He texted this, I wanna read this, I never do this, but he, he texted this to me and Carlos this morning, praying for you guys today praying for a wonderful service of worship to the Lord, fruitful conversations amongst the people of Woodmont, and trust in how the Lord is moving there. I'm looking forward to seeing you all next week. Grace and peace, brothers. He didn't intend for me to read that out. I'm sure I just may have violated his trust already, but I wanted you to hear what a godly and, and, and humble and well-worded, he's a very intelligent person as well. I think you're going to really enjoy meeting him and his family this week. Uh, was in, I was loitering in one of the young adult classes today, and uh, I won't, she told me she doesn't need credit for it, but she was encouraging one of the visitors in their class to, to go ahead and join the church today so that they, their voice could be heard next week in the vote. Go ahead and join the church, and then you can vote on the music minister next week. So it will be a ballot vote next week, and everyone who's a member here is encouraged to uh, participate in that election. I love being a pastor. I love doing weddings. I don't necessarily love doing funerals, but it's part of it, and it's uh, a special honor to be there for families in times of grief. But I, I love in weddings, I've heard many of you uh, talk about how you love to watch the groom's face when those doors fly open and the bride first appears and she walks down the aisle towards her groom. I'll never forget the moment in our wedding ceremony where that happened. When Morgan came down the aisle, we had a, a cellist, a part of a string group that played at our wedding, and they played one bare bones verse, you'll like this as a musician, of Be Thou My Vision. 
just kind of stripped down, just a moment of reflection. And then it ramped up at the end of it, and the organ joined in, and the piano, and every, her mom stood, and everybody stood, and the doors flew open, and there was Morgan uh, looking, you know, as the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life. I know from the pictures that her dad was escorting her, but I didn't see him. He's, he's hard to miss. He's 6'6", with a mustache that covers his whole mouth, and I didn't see him. Um, the back door of that old church flew open, and she was smiling from, from ear to ear, and I, I just couldn't believe that she was coming down the aisle to marry me. <laughs> I thought she'd made some mistake. I'd heard many people you know, talk about that moment in their own weddings. It's a, a great privilege as a pastor to stand next to Trey and others who have uh, seen their wife come down the aisle, and in that moment, you're not just seeing your, your bride come down the aisle. It's that see doesn't do it justice. It wasn't like Trey was, was looking at Anna coming down the aisle. He wasn't watching Anna come down the aisle. That, that's too passive of a verb. I like the word behold. In that moment, when, when our brides appear at that door, we beheld our brides. It's something far deeper than seeing or watching. To behold means to gaze upon something awesome. When one beholds, they're moved deeply in wonder. I was talking to Trisha and Garney Scott they, this past couple of weeks. They're on vacation, and they got to fly in Garney's plane over the Grand Canyon. She said, it's amazing how deep it is. You, just, you can't see it from the, the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's, you don't just look at it and say, oh, look, that's neat. You, you behold a sight like that. When you're beholding something, you're impressed by its beauty. You're overcome by the emotion that you experience by beholding that object. You know, one may look at an interesting piece of art. One may see an animal at a zoo or something, but... Very few things in life are truly beheld. Today we're going to look at a text in the Gospel of John where we are commanded to behold Jesus Christ. In this part of John chapter 19, we're, we're still in our series where Jesus is on the journey to the cross. He's been betrayed by Judas in this point here in chapter 18. The, he's already gone through the garden and been arrested by the Romans soldiers and the Jewish authorities who pointed him out. He's been bound and led to the house of the high priest where he was tried and the high priest sent him on to Pilate, the Roman governor of all Judea. We saw last week how Pilate really wanted nothing to do with Jesus and he tried unsuccessfully to turn him back over to the Jewish leaders, but they were determined that Jesus should die by hanging on a cross, thus proving to the world that he was cursed by God, violating the commands of Deuteronomy 23. He would show the world that he was an imposter to the claim of Messiah if he was hung on a cross, so they thought. And now, today, we're going to continue where Jesus is before Pilate, but again, like Kent Hughes says, this is not the trial of Jesus before Pilate. This is the trial of Pilate before Jesus. This is the trial of the Jewish authorities. This is the trial of the Roman soldiers, the Roman government, and the whole world. And really, we are faced with a decision as we behold Jesus Christ today. 
So will you stand in honor of God's word as I read our text for today, John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, this is the final scene in the Gospel of John before we get to the, the actual crucifixion. Next week, the choir is going to sing The Power of the Cross, and Aaron's going to conduct it. And we're going to, to see Jesus hung on a cross and nailed to that wooden plank. It'll be sort of a Good Friday service as we do what we just sang. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And this scene in chapter 19, the first part here, takes place in the courtyard of Pilate's residence, but it also takes place in the inner dungeons of the governor's palace. And remember that the Jewish authorities wouldn't go inside the palace because it was a pagan, non-Jewish residence, and they would defile themselves during the feast of Passover, which might mess up all their plans to have their family over and have a big meal together. They couldn't be bothered with all the ceremonial cleansing that must take place if they entered into a non-Jewish residence because their plans couldn't be spoiled. And remember, Pilate is extremely frustrated and scared, it says here even. Jesus has completely flipped the script on, on Pilate. Pilate thought he was in control, but Jesus soon demonstrated that he was not. 
you know, Pilate is used to, to being fully in control and having ultimate authority. His word was law throughout the entire region of Judea. And his whole life ha- had been defined by authority and success. He was part of the Roman elite ruling class in the whole world. Remember at this time, about a fourth of the world's population was conquered by the Roman Empire. But here was a self-taught rabbi who was basically homeless and wandering the last three years with a group of ragtag fishermen who weren't smart enough to go to, to rabbi school. And Jesus was clearly something unique he wasn't a highly educated, highly successful, highly wealthy, highly powerful, well-connected kind of rebel who wanted to stir up trouble against Rome. It was something more than that to Jesus. He was a spiritual king, he said in the last uh, sermon last week from chapter 18. And Pilate was smart enough to realize there's something different about this guy. There's something special about this man, Jesus. His wife knew there was something special about Jesus too. In in Matthew, we don't see this in John, but in Matthew 27, 19, we see that she sends Pilate a message right as he's trying Jesus and about to pronounce judgment. He gets this message from his wife that says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Clearly the spirit's at work in Pilate's household. So Pilate just tries to get rid of the problem when the Jewish authorities refuse to take Jesus back. Pilate, you know, last week came up with this great idea of setting him free for Passover. Every year at Passover he would release a prisoner and he gave him the horrible choice of the notorious terrible criminal Barabbas or this harmless, homeless, self-taught rabbi, Jesus, and that plan backfired because the crowd would rather choose Barabbas, who we talked about last week, his name means the son of a father, over Jesus, the son of the father. Barabbas goes free while Jesus takes the sentence, which was rightfully Barabbas's. Jesus literally died in Barabbas' place. So Pilate tries something else here in this section. He thinks that if he can have Jesus beaten mercilessly, if he can have him whipped, then the crowd would take pity on this poor, wretched, helpless man and let him live. So he has the Roman soldiers take Jesus back into the, the depths of the palace to be tortured And not only do they inflict physical pain, but they mock him. They take the opportunity to make fun, not only of Jesus, but of the whole Jewish nation, which they thought was a joke. Oh, you're the Jewish king, huh? Here, here's your crown, they said, as they pushed the thorns into his scalp. You know, I I had a battle with some thorns last week. I think I lost. I was telling McKenna, um, about our, our rose bushes at our house. We have seven rose bushes on our back patio, and they're, they're taller than I am. I think they're knockout roses, but they're huge. And every year we cut them down to about half the size, and every spring they shoot up again. And as a responsible father, I gave my 10-year-old son a 
hedge trimmer and told him to <laughs> go to work out in the backyard, and I was on cleanup duty. So I, I put on these gloves that were leather gloves. I think they may be like pleather, though. They're, they're not real leather, I don't think, because the thorns, every time I went to collect a, a, a bundle of rose bushes that Jude had cut, they would just poke right through those gloves and into my throbbing hands by the end of it. You know, thorns themselves are actually a result of the fall. Did you know that? Not fall like autumn, like the fall of creation. Before Adam and Eve believed the serpent's lie, before they fell for the trick of Satan in the garden and disobeyed God, rebelled against him openly, all the plants of the garden were soft and fluffy. I believe that's true. There was no such thing as thorns. There was no such thing as poison ivy in the Garden of Eden. There were no wormwood trees, no Venus flytraps, because nothing died in the garden. How do I know all that? The Bible says so. Genesis 3, verse 18, when God finally shows up on the scene after the garden had turned into a Jurassic Park after it was a paradise, and animals had turned on each other, and death entered the world through sin, God tells them what the results are going to be now. He tries to help Adam and Eve understand what it means that sin has entered the world. And part of that is in verse 18. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Which the amazing thing about that is that Jesus comes to reverse the curse of thorns and thistles even. This is why we sing at, at Christmas, no more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make the blessing known far as the curse is found. The irony here is strong, isn't it? One of the signs of the curse of sin is literally pushed into the head of Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross to remove the curse of sin once and for all. When it looks as if the curse has triumphed over Christ, he carries the curse to the cross and, and nails it to the cross as part of God's divine plan to break the curse. The thorns are nailed to the cross along with Christ, no more to infest our world even though they poked my hands a couple days ago, one day Christ will return and make all things new and there will be no more thorns. What's meant to be a cruel joke against Jesus and against the Jewish nation with a crown of thorns, a crown actually does sit on the head of the king of all creation, who in a matter of weeks from this point in John's gospel would actually ascend back into heaven where he would then sit down at his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father, awaiting the time that God would finish the work of redemption that he'd started on the cross and would make all of Jesus' enemies into a footstool for him to use. Pilate is finally satisfied here in chapter 19 that the soldiers have done their work of making Jesus to appear overwhelmingly a pathetic and tragic figure. 
And in his humanity, Jesus, I'm sure, could barely stand after the flogging. He's beaten to a pulp. He's whipped and spit upon, mocked. Surely the crowd would be moved by this sight, this horrendous sight, and have some pity, some compassion. Surely they would see that this poor man posed no threat to them or their carefully crafted, comfortable way of life for those in ruling authority. And Pilate says to the crowd here in verse 4, See, I'm, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. And out comes Jesus, battered, bleeding, bruised, face swollen, eyes barely able to open, and a purple robe from an officer is around him, and a crown of thorns to make fun of the idea that this wretched Jewish rabbi from Nazareth could possibly be some kind of king. And, and Pilate doesn't want the crowd to just look at Jesus. He doesn't want them to see Jesus. Look at verse 5. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. He commands the crowd that's, that's gathered there outside of his palace to behold Jesus, to allow their gaze to linger upon him and to let their hearts be moved. Like an inner city kid who's never seen the countryside who gets to go to the Grand Canyon. Like a groom watching his bride walk down the aisle. Or how we, a couple years ago, in the parking lot, grilled hamburgers and then we beheld as the sun passed behind the moon, exactly. You know, the last time someone in the Gospel of John told a crowd of people to behold Jesus, it was back in chapter 1 when John the Baptist was baptizing out in the wilderness and preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And one day, all of a sudden, the Messiah himself shows up at the, the river and John 1, verse 29, says that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Gaze upon the Messiah, he says. Weep, fall on your knees for joy. God's plan to save the world, to rescue us, is come to fruition in the flesh right here before you. The anointed perfect Lamb of God himself has come into our world to rescue us. He's come to take away our sin, to, to bear the consequences that we could never have paid ourselves. He's come to reverse the curse of sin and suffering forever. And therefore, we don't have to die for our sins now. Life has come, abundant life for both here and for eternity. You know, I've read a lot lately about um, how hard it is to impress people these days, especially young people. They don't say wow very often, apparently. We, we use that word awesome. I think in the 90s that was a real popular word, awesome. But how often are we actually in awe of something? It's true that anyone can get on their phone now and watch a billion YouTube videos of something that is amazing, beautiful, wonderful, and we just yawn and sigh and go on to the next one. 
I heard a comedian recently talk about being on a flight and the captain came on the PA and said, I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but the, the Wi-Fi in the cabin is down for the, the time being for the rest of the flight. And we're sorry for the technical difficulties we're having. And the guy next to him on the flight slammed his laptop shut and said, oh, that's great, fantastic, some young businessman. And the comedian was like, we're sitting, sitting in a metal tube going 600 miles an hour, six miles above the earth right now. He said, wow, we should all just be going, this is amazing. And this guy's upset because the Wi-Fi's down. We've lost our sense of wonder and awe when Pilate tells us to behold Jesus. It's, it's meant to invoke something visceral in us. I think the enemy would, would love to keep us in a state of constantly being unimpressed, of being bored, of constantly being frustrated with the ultimate, ultimately petty things of this world like Wi-Fi. When the Lamb of God is presented before us clearly, we're called in scripture to gaze upon Jesus Christ in wonder and awe. In John chapter one, in verse 18, the prologue, I preached on this last Christmas. This is where we are now. John tells us no one's ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side though. He, however, has made him known. Jesus has shown us God. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 3, says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ has revealed the goodness and the glory of God himself to us. Do you want to see God? Behold the man. Do you want to know ultimate joy? Perfection, beauty beyond compare, behold the man. But too often, we just glance at Jesus, we see what we want to see, we're not impressed, and we move on to the next thing. That's what's happened with this crowd here in Pilate's courtyard. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they didn't behold him, they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. See, the, the crowd just glanced in the direction of Jesus, and yeah, they saw him, but they had already made up their minds that he should be killed by crucifixion. Their hard hearts prevented them from beholding Jesus from falling to their knees in repentance before the king of kings and worshiping him as he deserves. But Pilate, again, he's, he's a learned man. He's a very intelligent person. And he knows how to behold something. And he sees there's something deeper going on here. Three times he's told the crowd that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And when the Jewish leaders tell Pilate in verse 7 that Jesus claims to be the son of God, he's blaspheming. Pilate doesn't react with cynicism and say, who cares, no big deal. He's actually afraid. 
He's encountered the divine king of kings, and he knows there's something special and wonderful about this man whose fate he now holds in his hands, or he thinks he holds his fate in his hands. So he pulls Jesus back into the palace again to, to speak with him face to face with the king of kings. And Pilate asked Jesus a good question in verse 9, where do you come from? Because if you know where Jesus comes from, you know the most important thing about him. Several times already in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus reveal that he is, in fact, from above, that he is heavenly, of heavenly origins. But Jesus remains silent here, and Pilate tries to intimidate him in verse 10. That doesn't go real well. He says, you know I can crucify you, crucify you right? And again, the, the irony here is that Pilate doesn't really want to crucify Jesus. He's trying to get out of it. But Jesus must be crucified. He must drink the cup that was reserved for him as part of God's divine plan to rescue this fallen world back into himself. So who's really in charge here? Pilate wants to set him free. Jesus wants to go to the cross in obedience to his father. So Pilate is definitely not the one who's leading the trial here. It's all in Jesus' hands. The scene finishes again outside in the courtyard. Pilate's tried every trick he can think of to, to get rid of Jesus, and now the crowd drops the bomb on him in verse 13. They, they manipulate Pilate by saying, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. You know, one thing the Roman Empire did not take well was someone making themselves out to be a rival king. That was squashed pretty quickly. And Pilate couldn't run the risk of not being Caesar's friend. He'd worked so hard to get where he was at through all his manipulative, backstabbing, corporate ladder climbing ways. Any appearance of disloyalty now might undo it all and, and send his, his status crumbling to the ground. So sometime around the middle of the day on Friday, the sixth hour, when the, the same time that all the sacrificial lambs across Jerusalem, across Judea, would, would be slaughtered in preparation for the Passover meal that evening, around that time, Pilate takes his place on the judgment seat and pronounces Jesus' death sentence. Once more, Pilate presents Jesus, a condemned man, to the crowd and says, Behold, your king. The irony is thick, isn't it? Again, the people are blind to the truth, and they don't care. They don't gaze upon the king of kings. They just blindly shout out, Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asks, exasperated at this point, terrified of what may happen if he crucifies him, what may happen if he doesn't crucify him. And, and the crowd responds, we have no king but Caesar. These are children of the promise of God. These are Abraham's offspring who blaspheme their God. The, the very thing they accuse Jesus of doing, blasphemy, they themselves do here by saying they have no king and they pledge loyalty to Caesar first and foremost over Yahweh, their sovereign God. So the obvious question for us today is this. 
Will we behold the man? Will we stop our busyness? Will we take a step back from our distracted lives where we are unimpressed by anything and gaze upon Christ, broken and beaten, yet the King of kings, fully sovereign? Or will we, like the, the crowd in the wilderness by the river in John 1, behold the spotless Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin? Will we run to him? Will we treasure him above everything else in this world? Will we look full in his wonderful face and allow the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Andrew Peterson, I quote him a lot. He's one of my favorite singer-songwriters. He has a new version of Behold the Lamb of God, the, the musical that we presented last Christmas here uh, at church. The title track, Behold the Lamb of God, has a new pre-verse written to it. It's beautiful. It imagines us on the banks of the River Jordan where John the Baptist is making his proclamation, prepare the way of the Lord. It says, we who walked in darkness deep now see the light of morning. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, a child to us is born. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the light and life of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Broken hearts, behold our broken hearts. Fallen far, we need you. Behold the sin of man. Son of God, Emmanuel, Son of man, we praise you. Behold the Lamb, the hope of man. Behold the Lamb of God. Wanderers in the wilderness, now hear a voice is crying. Prepare the way, make straight the paths. Your king has come to die. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the light and life of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Let's pray. Lord God, in our busy world, we have so many distractions. We have devices that give us amusement. God, amusement, I know, means without thought. We don't know how to properly gaze upon you. We don't know what it means to behold you. God, come teach our hearts to behold you. Forgive our apathy. Forgive our jadedness, our hard hearts, our callous eyes that are not wowed by anything. And God, the truth is that the things that we often are amazed by are not really ultimate things anyway. God, let us gaze upon Jesus Christ. May we behold the man upon a cross 
And may we fall to our knees in worship and in wonder and cry out about your goodness and your grace. May we turn our eyes fully upon you and look full in your face, God. I know many of us are already thinking about lunch and, and what football game we're gonna watch today, God, and all these things that are of this world. I pray that just before we leave that you would allow us to gaze upon you and to truly behold you, oh God, revealed to us fully in the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray these things in the high and holy name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, fully appropriate for today's message. If you've never um, become a Christian, if you've never beheld Jesus Christ for the first time and surrendered your life to him in obedience, if you've never received the free gift of salvation that he offers by grace through faith, there's no better time to do so than right now. Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit moving in your heart and you know you need to come forward today and give your life to Christ. Maybe you've never been baptized and you know that, like McKenna did today, that you wanna take that step of obedience in believer's baptism and, and show the, the, the whole church family your public profession of faith in Christ. Maybe you do want to join the church, not so you can vote in next week's um, vote, but so that you can be a part of our family, so that you can walk with us on this journey of faith, this journey of discipleship that we are on together. Christianity is a team sport. You can't do it by yourself. All you introverts, all you high-achieving people who like to do things alone, Christianity is one of those things you cannot do alone. If you're not in a small group, if you're not being discipled in a relationship, I encourage you to, to talk to me about how you can get plugged in to this family of faith and get involved. Maybe you need to be serving somewhere and you wanna get involved in service. Maybe you have an idea for a ministry opportunity and you feel like you wanna get involved with that. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, don't delay. Let's, if you maybe just wanna come pray with somebody, maybe you wanna come Jay and Brad, if you wanna pray uh, with someone here at the front, they'll be here to receive you, or, or myself, or you can just come pray at the altar. Whatever it is you need to do in this, let's stand and sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look in his wonderful face.